1: Well, good morning, gang, and welcome to New Southern Garden. I'm so glad that you decided to um, spend some time with us this Saturday. Of course, it's always a good day to be in the landscape, and (laughs) if it tends to be, you know, it tends to be a bit... Nasty We had some weather this week at my house It was just a terrible downpour But it was at night then we wake up the next day and boom Beautiful sunshine But, you know, even on those days that are nasty It's still a good time To think about being in the landscape You know, even if the weather conditions Are not so conducive to digging Or weeding or feeding Or just being outside You know, we're going to come to summer It's going to be hot we can use all these uh, inclemental, inclemental, inclement, inclement weather days to plan and prepare and maybe just to learn. And today I have a, I sort of want to get a bit personal in a way. Not too personal, don't worry. Just a little bit personal because, you know, in gardening, let me preface, preface by saying this. In gardening, the point of gardening, the point of horticulture, and I've said this many times, the point is to create a sense of place. Create a sense of place. Now, what does that mean? Well, it really means whatever you want it to mean. If you want to create a place that feels like Miami, Well, use plants that can grow in our area to create a sense of Miami, a sense of place. Now, some places, or rather some gardens, I should say, may feel like a place that exists. Sometimes we have Japanese gardens, and we can create a sense that we're in Japan, but really we're in North Georgia. Uh, Sometimes we may try to recreate a, a meadow or prairie, which... You know, we have some natural meadows and prairies here, but really we're a forested area. Uh, the, The meadows and prairies we have here are because people are mowing, keeping trees at bay. But maybe we want to have that sort of Midwest prairie feel. Create an atmosphere that makes you feel like you've gone off to the Midwest, but you're here nestled in the beautiful Northeast Georgia. Now, some places though, some gardens can create a sense of a place that doesn't necessarily exist. You know, you may call this like an eclectic garden, maybe something that really represents your personality. But when people step into it, they feel like they're at a place um, or in a place, I should say. Now, the, the last thing, of course, would be that um, a sense of place can be your own style or it can be pulling from a style somewhere else. Now, a, a vegetable garden, okay? A lot of times, a vegetable garden uh, is we tend to think it's just productive. We're going to put plants in rows, and we're going to try to produce the biggest tomatoes we possibly can. But a tomato, a, a tomato garden, a vegetable garden can feel like a place. It can have its own personality. It can have its own sense of place. So whether you're trying to landscape your front uh, beds right outside your house. Or whether you want to create a very um, uh, quiet spot on the backside of your house, maybe surrounded with some uh, privacy screens or hedging or something, or, or maybe you want to have a very open, a very open landscape. All of these factors help to create that sense of place. So place is very important when we think about gardening in general. And we don't always think of it first. We just think about the plant, right? We think about the beautiful individual plants. But I want you to think think back. Sometimes when I give talks to garden clubs and master gardeners groups, uh, I'll, I'll start, no matter what the topic is, I'll start talking about place, And one of the first questions I ask is, you know, close your eyes. Close your eyes and think of a place you remember growing up. Maybe you grew up, uh, maybe you didn't grow up here. Maybe you grew up in in a city. And your sense of place, your idea of that place, that that memory, maybe a, a patio with a few potted plants. And that can very well be a garden, a garden of its own. Maybe like, well, for me, growing up, the place I think about is the woods in the back of my house, my childhood home. So we didn't own the property in the woods, but you could venture into it. And I remember these ancient trees. Yes, there were oaks. Uh, there were there were some maples sort of along the edge, and there were pines going uh, right on the edge of the forest going in, particularly like where our our house had been cleared a bit and pines had started growing and and some ancient pines were there that were left behind thank goodness the uh, construction crew did not demolish every tree and just flatten the earth no uh, the topography was pretty much kept the same the house was built on a basement uh, so we didn't have we had a lot of old trees which was great growing up and so going deeper in the forest though there was a stream and along the stream there were very old very ancient beech trees american beech trees now the beech trees grow wild. They did in my backyard growing up as a kid. And so one of the most important places to me is the woods because that's where I would go off and, as a kid and look for salamanders under rocks in the creek that ran behind uh, the house there. But I remember these beech trees and these, this glorious gray bark they had and just this, the thick sinewy uh, trunks that were obviously very strong trees and very old trees. So think of a place that you remember, you know, maybe you want to bring in a, a sense of that place into your own landscape, and you very well can. So another place that's important to me, now here's the personal part of the story today, is my grandmother's house. I called her Granny. So at my Granny's house, she lived in downtown Gainesville, um, uh, sort of off of one of the main highways there, and you know, is an older neighborhood. Those houses were built in the 50s. Um, She actually lived in the house that her mother and father moved into when they left the country. I don't mean the country U.S. I mean the country uh, out in the rural areas of uh, northern Hall County. And so uh, growing up as a kid, she came from sort of a cotton farm. Um, Her parents were sharecroppers. She was born in the 30s right after, well, during the Great Depression, but before the uh, World War II. And sometime uh, when her parents started getting older, they traded that property, that farm, up in Cool Springs. Cool Springs is where she grew up, which is not not too far from here as the crow flies. It's sort of triangulated between Cleveland, Dahlonega, and Gainesville, but closer to Gainesville. Well, anyhow, they just left. She said they didn't tell. Her parents didn't tell any of the children that they had left. I mean, the children were grown and had, you know, been married and and moved out of the house. They just left because they knew they were getting older. They wanted to be closer to the city where there was a hospital and, and doctors and et cetera, et cetera. So they found this little, they traded their property up there for a small house i mean probably not even 30 by 30 but a very small house two bedrooms uh and i don't even know well i think it did have i think it was one of the first builds over in that area that had plumbing so they went from an outhouse to uh an indoor bathroom but uh so anyhow her mother lived her life out there and then my grandmother purchased the home from the estate and uh the family and she lived there so this particular site has been In our family, well, now for three, and I guess I'm the fourth generation uh, that remembers this house, so my great-grandmother, my grandmother, my dad uh, grew up in that area, and then, of course, I visited my granny at this house, this place, so, you know, being there in the 50s, uh, a lot had changed. I don't know what it looked like way back when. But some of the living family members do, uh, especially when, you know, my great-grandmother, the matriarch of the family, if you will, she was having her own garden. She had a lot of flowers and whatnot. Now, my grandmother didn't really grow too many flowers, uh, but there were still remnants from my great-grandmother. So today, I want to take you uh, to this place. I want to take you to this place Uh, plant by plant actually we're going to talk about seven plants and these are still some of them are old and some of them are newer plants uh, that me and my granny worked on uh, before she passed away but I wanted to take you through this place that I remember growing up as a kid it's very important to me uh, and give you maybe a sense of this place just by talking about the plants And you can do the same. Like I said, we tend to just get uh, hung up on individual plants. We tend to think about, oh, that plant has beautiful flowers. I'm going to grab one of those. And this plant has beautiful leaves. I'm going to grab one of those and just plant them here and there, kind of haphazardly. Uh, But if we think about we're trying to create a sense of place, um, then putting the plants together in a certain way can help us to achieve that atmosphere we're, we're feeling now like i said my grand my granny was n- by no means a, a gardener per se uh, but she did love plants she did love growing things her and my grandfather had a big garden in the backyard there and i've mentioned before they had a big garden up here in cleveland uh, where he had a place uh, where he grew up so they had two big gardens they love to do vegetables and all that uh, but these plants that are in her landscape have become quite important to me why mainly because either when i was a kid i ran around these bushes and saw the flowers or saw the foliage of these plants number two some of these plants that we're going to talk about today i helped plant uh her me and her would select or she'd tell me i really want some of this or that and i would go get it and bring it back and plant it for her And, uh, the last thing is when she was, you know, uh, couldn't, couldn't do much outside. Uh, I would go and prune her roses, for instance, prune her shrubs. And she, she was pretty, like if she was still living, Probably this time of year she'd be calling me every other day saying, "You got time to come prune these roses Isn't it about time to prune these roses?" <laughs> I do miss that. I do miss those calls to uh, come and do some landscaping and some uh, shrub maintenance at her place but uh, I actually still continue to do that because we we still are, are holding on to her place just 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 for a bit longer you know uh, when someone passes away uh, you know plants they come and go people they come and go. This is this is life. This is living organisms, right? But the things they leave behind are, are just things, you know, like the house. It's just a thing. It 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 brings back memories to us. But we have to know and understand she's no, she is no longer at that place. She's no longer at that place. But for whatever reason, we do get nostalgic, don't we? And we do try to remember. And plants gardening is a great way. Gardening is a great way to remember people by. Individual plants is a great way to bring that nostalgia and those memories back. I think that uh, for, for folks who have family who, you know, planted certain things, roses, camellias, uh, whatever. You know, folks come into the nursery all the time and say, oh, we're, we're selling my mother's house or my aunt's house and she had these beautiful roses. We want to know how to propagate them so we can bring them home to our place and remember her by. You know, plants have a strange way, just like maybe jewelry, uh, photographs big time, right? Things that our loved ones had touched in their lifetime, uh, things they might have planted in the ground in their lifetime. They can bring back those good memories. So today is more, I guess, about uh, maybe personal, philosophical, maybe even spiritual a little bit, because I don't think you can step into creation without feeling a lot of these things and understanding uh, maybe the, the, the weight That gardening can have, and I would say the weight that gardening should have in our lives. I mean, I know not everyone is interested in the things that you and I are, as far as getting our hands dirty, uh, pruning roses, getting pricked by them, blood flowing out of our fingers, but we still go at it because we know they'll look beautiful in the spring. Not everybody is geared in that kind of mindset, but I think we should be. I think we should be. And it is definitely a way, gardening is a way that generations are connected. And I'm going to give you an example. We're going, uh, coming up on the first break today. But I'm going to give you an example um, of these plants that, for some reason, I'm either connected to uh, a generation that I knew, like my granny, and some of these plants connect me to a generation that I never met, like my great-granny, my great-grandmother. Some things that she planted, they're still growing today, and we're going to talk all about that. So, again we're going to talk about plants and i'm going to make a case for why you should use some of these some of these are old-fashioned some of these might have fallen out of style but i think some of them have been on the comeback too and uh, so we're going to have that good gardening information but i may have some personal anecdotes along the way and i hope you'll indulge me uh, because i'm feeling quite nostalgic and i'll tell you in particular why i'm feeling nostalgic when we get back and talk about the first plant today the seven sisters rose hang on tight we'll be right back Alright, gang, so this morning I've sort of asked you to come along with me on a personal journey (laughs) through my granny's garden. I'll call it a garden because, you know, we could call our landscapes yards. We could call them a yard, and we often do. My front yard, my backyard. But the definition of a yard is a place where prisoners recreate. (laughs) A place where prisoners recreate. Now, sometimes it may feel uh, like hard labor working in your yard but I like to call them gardens and like I said by no means was my granny really a a gardener in the sense that uh, many folks are but she did like plants she loved plants certain plants she loved and really wanted to see grow around her landscape so this little tiny house little tiny white house uh, just a a shoebox you know uh, is, is surrounded by a lot of lawn But there are shrubbery planted here and there, scattered around the lawn. And then uh, there are some annual, some perennials. And there is something that's supposed to be annual at her place, but it comes back every year. So I'm going to talk about uh, seven plants today that. I think are worthy because, uh, well, well. first of all, I like them because my granny liked them. But also, these do have some nice characteristics, and I think she had a good eye. Uh, like I said before the break, you know, there's something nostalgic about plants because um, for people who have family members who were who were gardeners or who liked plants or who had some uh, nice roses or nice camellias and nice gardenias or hydrangeas around their property. Once that individual passes away, they leave them behind. And in many cases, these plants will surpass us when we plant them, right? Uh, But in most cases they'll surpass the next one, two, maybe three generations. Remember when you're planting a tree, you're not really planting it for you. No, the true gardener understands that when you plant a tree, you are Planting a tree under which its shade you will never sit. Planting a tree, planting shrubs, they're for us, yes, but really for those next generations. And so, uh, like I said, my grandmother has passed away, but uh, she has left these beautiful plants behind, and I have helped her cultivate some of them. Uh, and there are some good stories. So, the very first plant that I'd like to take you through my granny's garden would be the Seven Sisters Rose. Now, the Seven Sisters Rose, uh, I'm going to give you some history about that plant, but I want to give you the history uh, uh, about it personally. So, this rose bush that's in her in her landscape. There were actually two seven sisters rows uh, planted in the front yard. Uh, excuse me, the front garden. But uh, they were planted in the front garden, and they were planted by my grandmother's mother. So again, my great grandmother was the first person. Uh, first person to live in this house, her and, and my great grandfather, and they planted some plants. Well, by the time by the time I was born and, and can can remember. Uh, life (laughs) these roses have were in the front of the house and so they had surpassed my great-grandmother my grandmother my father and now they're still growing into my generation and of course i've had children so you've got one two three four five generations and these plants are still growing well i should say one of the two are growing one of them did pass away (laughs) do plants pass away i don't know One of them died. Um, One of these roses died when, oh, maybe I was in high school or so. And it was a traumatic thing. But then guess what? That led an opportunity uh, for me and my granny to plant some new roses together. So I procured some roses for her uh, as a Mother's Day gift and planted them for her. And she loved them. Now, they were just knockout roses, but we're going to get to that a little later. So the the most ancient plant in my grandmother's landscape is the Seven Sisters Rose. Now, the Seven Sisters Rose is classified as a multiflora rambler, which that multiflora... Uh, You know, some roses are single-stem roses, right? You have one stem and one rose on the tip of the stem. Well, in this case, there is multiple flowers. So we may call them a spray, right? Many of these old-fashioned roses, uh, they were sprays. And so you have a stem, and it just opens up and busts into all kinds of flowers as far as the number goes. Just plenty of flowers in this spray of rose flowers. Now... The Seven Sisters was introduced a long time ago, in 1817. It was introduced in Britain, but it uh, traditionally is a Chinese-type rose uh, by a man named Charles Greville. Charles Greville. Now, the cool thing about the Seven Sisters rose, and probably one of the reasons why it's still growing after five generations of my family, is that uh, it tolerates poor soil It can handle some shade. These plants are in full sun uh, and in in pretty good soil, but it's a tough rose. It is a tough rose. So it did gain some popularity because it's so tough, and it migrated across the Atlantic Ocean from Britain into America and now has spread all across the continent into the west as it was settled uh, through the 1800s and early 1900s. The settlers, of course, would bring seeds from this plant, would bring cuttings uh, to their new homes out west so started in well sort of started in china but was really um introduced in britain and then spread over this way. And so my great-grandmother was one of the recipients. I don't know how she received the rose, if she bought it from a nursery, because back in that day, there probably weren't that many nurseries in our area, Uh, but maybe somebody had given her the rose. That was the way, uh, really, nursery business was done. People would pass cuttings over the fence. Uh, People would visit you and say, oh, I love that hydrangea. Well, take a snipping, you know, take a clipping and take it home and root it yourself. So, this particular rose is hardy to zone six so we have no problem growing this rose here uh, some of our friends much north of here may have some difficulties but we have no problem in our zone sev- uh, seven because it can be sensitive to cold and i will say that uh, it needs to be sheltered from wind even these roses being in an exposed area at my granny's house they sometimes over winter the stems will dry out and we have to cut them back pretty hard uh, but It can become a rambling type rose. It can climb over a fence. As a matter of fact, if you let this seven sisters rose climb along a fence, then you will probably have the most blooms possible because that horizontal branching, the horizontal branching of this plant along a fence receives more light. And more light means more energy for the plants, which generally means more energy more flowers so they can become quite tall especially since they ramble they could climb up to maybe 20 feet if they're growing in a tree or along a a a post of some kind um, and sometimes can grow uh, but but usually are shorter than that this one in particular stays pretty short because well me and my granny pruned it together and I continue to prune it and so that keeps it more like a shrub rose so very easy uh, to be a shrub rose if pruned but no problem being on a trellis uh, if you have an arbor or something you can do that uh, easily with this plant now This rose is not necessarily a determinate rose. Now, a determinate rose, like a tomato, you know, the tomatoes come in at one time, but determinate plants uh, will set their buds from last year, or when we talk about shrubs, they'll set the buds last year and bloom in the spring, and then they may not bloom in the summer on new growth, so they're sort of blooming on that old growth. Well, this rose does do most of its blooming in late spring, but if you Keep it deadheaded. If you trim it back, we see sporadic blooming on the Seven Sisters rose all summer long into early fall. So, it essentially is a rebloomer, but it's heavily blooming one time in the uh, late spring. Now, the flowers. Let me describe the flowers because when we talk about roses, that's what we want to hear about. Are those flowers? They are one to two inches in diameter, so a decent size rose, not a super huge bud, uh, but they are heavily double. Now, you hear of double roses, but what is a heavily double? Well, a heavily double rose would mean that there are more petals than usual for a double flower. You know, a single rose may have six petals, double rose may have at least 12, but a heavily double, these suckers just packed full of petals. So it looks like a little pom-pom ball of beautiful red petals, if you will. Now, of course, uh, there's really not much of a scent to it, um, to this flower, uh, that I've noticed myself, but uh, that could be... May have to get up real close or something, but regardless, when they open up, they're sort of this dark pink. They turn to this uh, sort of purple. Then, um, as the flowers, well, a purple red. It's really more of a red flower, but it's sort of in that uh, burgundy kind of shade, if you will. And then, lastly, they sort of fade to a cream, a lighter color as they die. So, Seven Sisters Rose, it's an old rose. And as far as my family goes, it is a really old rose because my family's been growing it for a very long time, five generations now. My great-grandmother planted the plants that I actually took cuttings from this week. She planted them in probably the 50s, and I'm taking cuttings from them today in the 2020s, and hopefully we can spread those around our family. When we get back, more plants from my granny's house. the, morning, the
0: earth came to-
1: Well, gang, I know that you probably have never met my grandmother. You know, there may be some cases where you happen to know her, but we don't realize we know the same person, you know. But today I'm talking about the plants in my granny's garden around her house. And mainly because, um, you know, it's... When we talk about remembering things, remembering people, having memories, etc., What we tend to, plants are one of the things that help us to recall those memories, to sort of be nostalgic, if you will. And this past week, I was in my granny's landscape. Of course, she doesn't live at the house. She's no longer there, but the memories are, and the plants are there. And I'm taking cuttings from certain plants that I want to uh, propagate, make sure that we carry on. Into the future generations be able to bring them out to, to our landscapes uh, those of us who are left behind here and so uh, I don't know if that's something you do or have thought about but maybe propagating or transplanting plants from an old landscape that you have a uh, connection with that can be a very beneficial thing for your landscape and really for the value you have in your landscape Having something that reminds you of somebody who may not be here any longer is a good thing. And so gardening, again, gardening transcends one generation, right? There are plants like we just talked about, the seven sisters rose that my great-grandmother planted uh, in the 50s. It's still growing today, and hopefully we can keep that lineage going by propagating it. Um, But, I mean, since my great-grandmother has been five generations in our family down to my children, That's a long time for some living creature to endure. So with that in mind, you know, these plants, they help to connect us. They help to bring us together, maybe with generations we've never met. And think of it this way. Plants can help us, can help the future be connected to us, even though the future may have never met us, right? Okay, so enough about that weird time travel, but... uh, we need to talk about some more plants in this landscape because the next plant that I want to talk about in my granny's landscape, and, you know, these are plants that help make her fl- her place feel like her place because they've been there for a long time, is the Akuba. The Akuba japonica. That's its botanical name. Most people call it Akuba. Uh, it's a wonderful name. It's just easy to say Akuba. But it does from come from Japan, and it is a large evergreen shrub. It's a large evergreen shrub that does very well does very well in the shade. It can grow in the sun and I will tell you that this plant sort of grows in too much sun at my grandmother's house and I'll tell you why because if the akuba if the akuba grows in too much direct sun then in the summer the very tips of the plant whether it's one of the green variety of foliage or whether it's one of the variegated varieties of foliage, the tips of the plant will look like someone put a torch to them and they are just crispy, dark, black. They're just burnt. They looks like they're burnt. Now, it does not harm the plant, but it does make the plant look a little unsightly because you have this beautiful, gorgeous, large foliage, whether they're dark green or variegated. And then on the tips... You've got this burn back just... uh Uh, sooty colored twigs on the tips and so that is one of the strange things with a kuba it doesn't mind being in the sun but just expect those tips to be sort of burned back now like i said they're a large thick evergreen shrub Uh, they sort of are very very multi-stem very multi-stem shrub they will send up side shoots uh, very easily so this plant can be propagated by division uh, pretty well but the root system will be quite difficult to separate so keep that in mind if you want to make more of the akuba by division do it while it's young um but they actually propagate very well from cuttings and that's how i've acquired some akuba for my place uh from my grandmother's plant is by taking cuttings they root very readily actually just don't let them dry out you could do that in the spring you could probably do it over winter on the hardwood as well but the stems are attractive too because the stems uh for most of their life, are very green, just a bright green. Uh, you know, there's a few plants out there uh, that maintain a green-colored stem before it gets barky. So down on the interior of the plant, you will see a lot of barky uh, gray wood, but for the most part, uh, most of the growth will stay green. So that, too, is sort of different and attractive. Now, Akuba can be used as a screen. It can be used as um, uh, just some backdrop for something very colorful that flowers in front of it. Uh, If you go with, I think, the variety, probably one of the varieties my grandmother has would be called Gold Dust. Gold Dust. There's several varieties, and, of course, we carry... um, uh, let's see, Hasha Shinova or something. It's a Japanese name, but these varieties have a green leaf that is dotted or speckled like gold specks of gold, bright yellow uh, variegation. So that in itself is very attractive. I was actually surprised that she had one of these varieties because I know the history of this plant. My father planted when he was a child and was living there. He actually got the plant, planted it there. Uh, Like I said, he did not know that it was a little too much sun for this plant. It's huge, it grows well, but every summer those black stems on the tips, those black uh, tips, they just have to be trimmed back. Now, so again, this is a large, easy to grow, easy to propagate even. It doesn't really, it does not really produce a flower. If it does, it's not very conspicuous because I've never seen it. Um, so it, it gets uh, at least eight foot tall. It might get 10 Um, traditionally now there's probably plenty of new varieties that may get half that size five or six but they're still a bit bulky so put them on the background put them where you want to screen something that may be sort of shady Uh, they do have these very long uh, they're longer than they are wide they may be about uh, five uh, maybe not quite six inches but probably four to five inches long uh, and maybe half that in their width but regardless, I've always enjoyed it, may, mainly, maybe because it was growing in my grandmother's landscape. I mean, that would have been one of the first plants that I knew because it was right there on the corner of the house. We'd run around it. We'd, we'd run to the back of the house and get hit with the branches in our face, you know, as kids. And then when I go to the University of Georgia and study plants, Acuba is on our list, And I said, wow, I can finally give this plant a name. I didn't even know what it was called, but that plant had been growing all along since my dad planted it probably in the 70s uh, in my grandmother's garden. So, Akuba, look into that one. Now, I'm sort of going through these plants as chronological as I possibly can. So, the next plant that was probably introduced to her landscape is something called four o'clocks. Four o'clocks. Now, four o'clocks are generally treated like annuals, but they create underground these very tuberous roots that in our area actually overwinter or have been overwintering in her landscape every year. She would call them taters, right? So they look sort of like potatoes. But uh, she said, you can dig out some of them taters and take them home and they'll produce a new plant, you know? So I did that plenty of times. But the four o'clocks is an old-fashioned plant. It's it it's called four o'clocks because... Um, the flowers tend to open up and bloom in late afternoon. So you in the morning, you have tight flower buds, but then all of a sudden, when you get home from work in the summer, boom, you have these beautiful trumpet-like flowers. Now hers happen to be sort of a pink magenta, but there are plenty of four o'clocks, and generally you can buy these Uh, on a seed rack and they germinate quickly and in one season they're blooming they're probably up to waist high by the end of summer Um, they pretty much bloom all summer at my granny's house they like i said treated like a summer annual but in our zone i'm finding that uh, we can sort of treat them like a tender perennial it might come back year after year And the stand that Granny has at her place has just bloomed. It's sort of along the uh, right side, the west side of her house, Uh, in this long border. She has edged with some timber, and they, you know, right now there's nothing. But in the spring and summer, that, that, that border will just flush up with those four o'clocks. Um, they have a dark green leaf. I should probably talk about the leaves. Uh, sort of a uh, triangular shape, a rounded triangular shape leaf, if you will. Uh, but the foliage is nice. It does give you that kind of tropical, that tropical feeling. And so you could use something like four o'clocks in a tropical-like, tropical-ish garden, if you will. Um, but again, easy to propagate because you can save the seed. They will reseed if you let them fall, that's for sure. But also, I'm finding that the taters, like Granny called them, those uh, swollen roots, the bulbs, if you will, underground, uh, can be lifted uh, and transplanted. But they tend to uh, regenerate no problem, unless we did happen to have a extreme, extremely cold winter so check out four o'clocks. they're blooming at late afternoon when you get off of work four five six o'clock and they will fill the air with that sweet fragrance just a nice soft fragrance um, that hey why not grow some plants that not only look pretty but smell pretty too all right now the next plant this next plant uh, was actually planted by my uncle my um, granny's oldest son now He passed away before she did, and that was a tough time for our family. That was a tough time for our family, especially for her, because, of course, it seems unnatural. It doesn't seem right. Like Granny said, it's not right that um, a mother or father should have to bury their child. But before he passed away, he brought a Chinese snowball bush, which is in the viburnum family. He brought a Chinese snowball bush to her house and planted it sort of to the left side, kind of near that Akuba, if you will, uh, that we were talking about. But uh, sort of near the Akuba, uh, the Akuba on one side of a picnic table and the Chinese snowball bush is on the other side. So that picnic table is well balanced with some horticulture. But the Chinese snowball bush is a very old-fashioned plant. If we made a list of old-fashioned plants, snowball bush would fall into it. Now, we Tend to call them viburnums today uh, because I guess we're learning more, right? But uh, viburnums uh, are there's some native viburnums, there's viburnums from China, viburnums from all over the place. But this viburnum is pretty unique because it probably has one of the most impressive blossoms. Now the individual flowers are packed together. In a snowball, that's how it gets its common name, the snowball bush. They're pure white, maybe creamy white sometimes, but a lot like a hydrangea flower, right? Just a big mop, a big round snowball of fluffy white petals. Now, with that in mind, this particular snowball bush only blooms once a year. It is the, uh, I can't remember the species, but regardless, it is an old wood blooming plant. So it sets its flower buds the previous year and then blooms in the early part of spring. So you've got to be careful with your snowball bush. There are uh, another snowball bush called uh, Viburnum macrocephalum, which just means big head or big flower head. It has a huge snowball, but that one will bloom from spring, summer, and into fall, and I've seen it blooming in between Thanksgiving and Christmas, that late in the year. But the one my grandmother has, the one my uncle planted for her years ago, is a spring bloomer. So if you have a spring blooming viburnum, be sure to prune it after it blooms. Remember that little saying that I've said time to time, If it blooms before June, do not prune, all right? Now, this one blooms before June, so we won't prune it until after it blooms. But if you have a viburnum like the uh, macrocephalum, if you have that kind of viburnum, you can prune it in the spring to shape it up. It will still bloom, but I will say uh, most all viburnums bloom the best in the spring and then the ones that continue to bloom are sort of sporadic but regardless this is just another one of those plants that I find in my grandmother's landscape I have pruned this viburnum over and over year after year with my granny sitting on the front porch enjoying the sunshine watching me uh, prune some of these plants in her landscape so remember I'm talking about these plants because they are good plants but also I want you to sort of make that connection, that intergenerational connection uh, where grandparents are gardening with their grandkids and those plants that you work on together remain even after we are gone. Hang on tight. More about my granny's plants in her garden. Well, gang, if you're just joining us, I want to let you know that today we're essentially talking about place. We're talking about creating that sense of place in your landscape, or maybe just recalling places of your past, places that you remember, whether it's where you grew up and the landscape there, or maybe like I'm talking today about my grandmother's landscape, because I spent a lot of time there as a kid, and of course, as a uh, uh Teenager, if you will, starting to drive. I could take my grandmother places, and then, of course, in the last few years of her life, I was uh, helping her, taking her to church, and, and going out to eat with her, uh, just me and her. And so, being at her place, having that uh, that sense of place from our past, I think is very important. And gardening, gardening, uh, the landscape is one of those main ways uh, that we can create a sense of place. So, uh, plants—I've already mentioned—they transcend people, right? Most plants, some. Plants, plants are just for one season we know that but many plants like trees and shrubs and a lot of perennials they're going to endure even after the gardener is gone to seed himself you know or herself after the gardener has gone to seed some of these plants will still be blooming and that is the case at my grandmother's house some of these plants like we've talked about they uh, were planted before my grandmother and her mother planted them in this uh, in this garden so it's it's a Interesting concept that I hope I'm uh, getting across well, that uh, gardening transcends time, transcends generation, and it helps to connect older generations with newer and future generations. People who may have never met each other, like I never met my great-grandmother. I've sort of met her through some of the plants she left behind. Now, the next uh, plant that I want to talk about that's pretty prominent in my granny's garden is azaleas. Azaleas are, of course, the classic southern plant, right? We grow all kind of azaleas. Uh, The masters, uh, where the golf course is, right, in Augusta. There are azaleas all over the place, and that's very iconic for the south. And one of the reasons is because azaleas, um, some of them, may not be as cold hardy as others, but the evergreen types that particularly come from China, Japan, parts of Asia, they've been hybridized just like roses have been hybridized, just like camellias have been c- crossed and bred. And so we've got these beautiful selections now. And my grandmother was always interested in new things, okay? I'm talking about a lot of old things today. But at the time, there was this really new azalea called the encore azalea. When, when my grandmother discovered the encore that, you know, you don't just get spring blooms, no, the Encore Azalea gives you maybe late summer, uh, well, spring, late summer, and fall blooms. She just had to have some, so I'm not sure how she acquired these. If she went out and bought them herself, I think that my um, my uncle, my uh, my my aunt's. Her, my my grandmother's daughter's uh, husband I think he went out and maybe brought them in but the encores were very uh, attractive to her because of that multiple blooming period and uh, multiple or multi-season azaleas are definitely something that you may want to integrate into your landscape because again most of these azaleas, especially the encores, they're going to be evergreen, so that's checking that list off. They can be near the house and look good all year because they have foliage all year. But again, you get that spring bloom, which is a big flush of flowers, and then later you get sort of trickling some some blossoms in summer, and then another pretty good show in the fall. All right, so with the encores, something you can integrate into your landscape, but encores aren't the only reblooming azaleas. I'll give you a good example of one we carry at Lanier Nursery and Gardens, where you can find me throughout the week in Flowery Branch, Georgia. That is the uh, Flame Creeper Azalea. It's not an encore, but it blooms. maybe better than an encore. It, it only comes in that one color, that flame creeper color, which is sort of a, a hot red orange, if you will. Beautiful flower though. Uh, maybe it's uh, too too bright of a color for every space, but it gets wide but not very tall, maybe 24 to 36 inches tall, but it gets much wider than that. So it can fill a space and it's sort of like a ground cover shrub, if you will. Uh, they have small leaves and usually azaleas that have small leaves also uh, stay small in stature. So that is another plant that was recently, more recently introduced to my grandmother's garden. Her landscape is the Encore, the reblooming azaleas. She just absolutely loved those. Now, I told you about the seven sisters rose. The seven sisters rose, her mother planted. And I told you there were two of them when I was a young child. Well, as I got older, one died and only one survived. So it's still surviving today. But when that one died, I said, you know Granny, we need to have your own roses. You know, these were your mother's roses, but let's have your roses. So I went, and at the time, the double pink knockout rose was pretty brand new, all right? Double pink knockout rose was pretty brand new. I probably don't have to go into details about the knockout because you probably have some or are familiar with them. They're sort of falling out of favor now. But I will mention that uh, the nostalgia there. One day, she was there. I brought the roses over for a Mother's Day gift. I planted them. We prepared it, fertilized them. I pruned them ever since. And she would just call me all the time this time of year. When are you going to come prune my roses? When are you going to prune my roses? So, um... The thing, though, is I've noticed this year that the knockout that is out there, the not the pink double, is succumbing to the rose rosette virus, the rose rosette disease. And it is a virus. And the only recourse for this kind of disease is to remove the plant and either burn the plant, get it out of there, um, take it to the landfill, just let it dry out something, because as long as that tissue is living... As long as the plant tissue is living, the virus will be harbored, and it moves around by a little insect called a thrip. So the thrip carries the virus from one plant to another, and we're seeing it all over the place, folks, especially in subdivisions, because it comes in on one plant, and then pretty soon, over the course of a few years, that virus is infecting all the roses, particularly these knockouts. But if you want to protect some old-fashioned roses, some heirloom roses, some things you may not be able to find, like my granny's seven-sister's rose, we're going to remove this plant. It's going to have to go. So that's just another case of time-changing everything. Plants come and go. Plants get diseased. They've got to be removed or treated. In this case, viruses, usually the plant has to be removed completely. Now, the last little plant that I want to talk about is the Miss Huff lantana, all right? So probably just a few months before my grandmother passed away, we had just opened the nursery. We just opened the nursery. And actually, we had just started this show on WRWH. We called it Let's Get Growing. But she would listen to it uh, every Saturday. And she loved even in the hospital, uh, when she was in her last couple of weeks, she wanted to listen to the program. But regardless, um, before, before, a few months before her death, she wanted me to find the perennial lantana her and uh, her her niece they wanted perennial antenna and of course the celebrity perennial antenna is miss Huff they're herbaceous perennials so they die back to the ground in the winter and then they spring up from the root system with brand new stems and folks in one season miss Huff can become like a shrub so I told granny that I said granny I said um, I said uh you know these plants are going to get huge you've got a small space I said, you don't need as many as you want. She wanted like six or eight of them. I said, you only need like probably two or three. She said, no, 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 no. And this was before she got sick. But I remember her saying, I don't have time to wait. Put them in and put them tight, put them close. So they grew that uh, spring. And of course, she passed away in August. But that summer, she was able to enjoy that perennial lantana. And I'll tell you what, she wanted it because it came back year after year. And you know, that was the last year of her life, the last few months of her life. And she didn't get to see it come back. But guess what? I do. I get to see it come back. And every time that I trim it back, I trim back those uh, dry stems. I trim back the dry stems of, you know, late late winter, early spring. I'm just waiting for those buds to come out. And every time it buds out, and every time those new stems come out for this year, I'm reminded of that little sweet lady who sat on the front porch watching me plant them. And she wanted to see those beautiful lantana flowers. So gang let plants connect us to the past, future, present, everything. For New Southern Garden and WRWH, I'm Nathan Wilson, hoping you stay well and grow well. See you next week. I've been in
0: the city. Hey, thanks for joining us for this edition of Nathan Wilson's New Southern Garden Show. If you have a comment about today's program, you can reach out to Nathan by sending an email to grow at laniernurtrygardens.com. Also get more information at NewSouthernGarden.com. Join us next Saturday on Local News Radio 93.9 FM and AM 1350 for Nathan Wilson's New Southern Garden Show.